Acts chapter 4. And I just want to talk about the person of grace. Who is the person of grace? And what does that look like? And in a world where people are trying to live up to laws that don't matter, that are the wrong scorecards, uh, the wrong way to describe success, and really the word success is not a word that we read in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Um, when we live in this world where people in their individual lives are trying to reach a status of some kind, like, like what is the, what is the um, ideal weight? What is the ideal income? What is the ideal neighborhood to be living in? What's the ideal vehicle to be driving? What is the ideal family um, environment? What is the, the, and we're always trying to reach these ideals. And these are the laws that the writer of Romans, Paul, says that the that the uh, that the Gentiles have are law unto themselves. They have a law inside of them. We have a law inside of us, and it's not necessarily only the Mosaic law, but it's a cultural law, it's a social law, it's an ethnic law, it's uh, it's a law where where we see all the brokenness in society with with the racial tensions and with the social tensions and with with economic and educational tensions, and these all exist because we live with a law that's not the law of the perfect law of love that we read of in the book of James. And so people are, we are always unconsciously trying to uh, maintain, uh, to attain and maintain a law in our minds of what the perfect, successful, uh, godly, beautiful, handsome, et cetera, et cetera, person looks like. And whether you and I realize it or not, we have that inside of us. And it doesn't matter how long we've been saved. We have these laws inside of us that we, that torture us on a daily basis if we do not meet them with the standard of God's economy, and that's the standard of grace. And so, are you following me? So we we live in these laws. We're like even in our church, like back back in Houston. You know, I'm like, you know, oftentimes we have people that are from mega church. They come to our church, and they say, um, I'm always I'm a little bit like, you know, because right now we're meeting in a cafe, you know. And it's just like this, you know, like couches and chairs and just random places to sit. We don't, we're not filming our services yet. We're going get to get to that level. But and we're just sitting there like, you know, and people come from these mega churches with all their kids. And, you know, Texas has big families. And so, you know, that's always interesting. Kids running around. And, and I said, I, you know, so I've said to a few of them, I said, you know, I, I'm a little sorry. We don't have, you know, we're not the mega thing. And there's like, you know what? We are tired of the mega thing, and that's why we're here. We want, you know, we want Christ. We want to partake of uh, fellowship one with another. And so this body life, this life that we have in Christ, is not something that we could ever attain to, but it's something that we already have. We're already there. When we wake up in the morning, we're already there. We're there. Before your feet hit the ground in the morning, off your bed, you are a total success, accepted, loved, righteous person, that cannot, nothing can be added to you or taken away. You are there. You are, it's not, a, it's not a progressive acceptance. We don't teach that kind of theology, but we are accepted in the beloved and we are, we are there, we are loved, we're cherished and God boasts about us in, in heaven. And, and so we live with these laws, right? We live with these standards and a law is any kind of, in the Greek, it's a word that, uh, I'm sure Pastor Chuck has taught on it. It's nomos, which means it's a standard. 
It's a standard that needs to be met. And if you're not meeting that standard, there's that, what Pastor Schaller has described as, an, as a frustration index. Here's a standard, and here's where your experience is. 99.9% of the time, <laughs> you know? And this is where we're at, you know, in any given standard, any given time. And the distance between our experience and what our standard that we think we're supposed to meet, that distance there is called the frustration zone. And the higher the standard, the greater the frustration is. And I know pastors' wives go through this. Pastors go through this. I remember we were pastoring. I was pastoring in Philly. And I remember we had, you know, we were just helping Pastor Hoppy out. And then we were just kind of, we, did, we were doing a lot. You know, we just had teams come out from Baltimore. And the idea was that we would have this big day where we're just kind of a grand reopening. You know, and we had this big community thing. We had like a pig roast. We just got a pig from downtown Philly. And we, we just roasted it there and... <clears throat> We had about 200 people show up on the parking lot for the, for the pig, you know, free food, barbecue, and everything like that. That was Saturday afternoon, and then Sunday morning was like, okay, y'all, you're all coming to Sunday morning, right? <laughs> you're all coming to church Sunday morning, right? And that Sunday morning, the next day, we had like 10 people show up, and um, all of them were elderly people, except for one, one, um, one family that was just, there. it was just such an interesting, it was an amazing family. And... We were there, and I was so frustrated. I was like, what, you know, where is everybody? We worked so hard on this outreach, and nobody's here. You know, nobody's here. And I mean, people were there, but it was just not what we had expected. And I remember sitting there, you know, and, and as a pastor, you know, you pull in, and there's these great hopes and desires that you have for ministry, and, and your heart is for people. And you pull in, and I pulled in, and I saw, I saw the, you know, I saw the just, I saw something that I was expecting to be different. And I, and I was going to get up to preach. We was doing the worship. And I just remember the Holy Spirit said to me, I was just frustrated. I said, God, you know, we've poured so much into this, you know, sweat and blood, our own money. You know, we've, we've, we've done all of this. And, and I was frustrated. And, and uh, I, I was not in a place where I was ready in my heart to preach, you know. And I, I don't know if you've been there, but I was. And... You're just like, this is not, you know, this is not like where, where I wanted to be. My wife was there. And, and the Holy Spirit said to me, is Christ enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? And I said, I thought about it. I go, no. <laughs> I want a church crowd. I want some people in this room, you know. And like, and, and, and I just said, I was like, you know, you're wrestling with God before you preach. And you know, you know, you got to get this. You got to get this settled in your heart because you're not going to get up and be able to preach a normal message with all this turbulence. And I said, "Okay, God, I surrender. Whatever you want to do, you know, Jesus has got to be enough. He's got to be enough." I say yes, and if Jesus shows up, hey, that's great. Because in John chapter six, the all the disciples, the thousands and thousands of people that were following Jesus, had a standard that they were looking for. They were looking for a bread and fish king, and Jesus was neither. He said, I'm not that. And he preached the message. And his mega church, his mega crowd, his mega, mega operation was in one day done with one sermon. And they all left. And then he turns to his disciples and said, and will you guys go too? Like he was going for the juggler. He didn't care. Like he said, I am what I am. Whether you follow me or not, uh, I'm on a mission to, f- to fill the Father's will. It's about the Father's will. And it actually came down to that. Jesus is on the cross and nobody's there except for his mom. You know, moms, you know, moms are amazing. They're going to they're gonna show up no matter what's going on. And 
was Jesus disappointed? No, because disappointment, and this is just an important point before we get into the text here, disappointment is always going to be something that we experience um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's going to happen anyway. Uh, it's, it's imminent. Disappointment is imminent whenever we are functioning in the wrong standard outside of the grace of God. If Jesus is not enough, if the person of Christ is not enough, if Christ is not my all in all, then I'm going to suffer disappointment. And that goes, that goes in every area of your life. Your health, your, your marriage, your work, your singlehood, um, any area of your life. If Jesus is not enough, then, then disappointment. We are functioning in a law that's not a law of grace. And so well, let's look at Acts chapter 4 for a minute. And I want to just look at a very interesting... Um, very interesting situation here, and it's a little, it's a little, um, it's kind of outrageous when you look at this, and I'm just going to read the text here in, the, in Acts chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 32, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Think of that. Nobody was claiming anything of their own. Everything was everybody's. And and verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know, that was the first message, by the way, for the first 100 years of the church. You know what it was? Resurrection. You know, Easter's coming up in April, April chapter 4. That was the key message of the, of the apostles. It wasn't anything else but Jesus rose from dead. You killed, you killed the Son of God. You didn't even know who you were killing, and he rose. He rose on the third day. That was the core message, and with an abundant grace was upon them all. In the King James, it is it is great grace. The a great grace was upon them. I always love that word. You ever felt great grace on your life? You ever sense that like you're living a life that you don't deserve? There's a there's a there's a gentleman in our church, and he's um, law enforcement. He is a special detective for. Um, he was in Pelican Bay for years and just, uh, you know, lived in Redding, California, crashed down doors doing b- drug raids. And just he was a specialist on the Mexican mafia gangs and just uh, really somebody's nightmare. <laughs> and um, him and his wife, you know, really tough people. Uh, we met them recently. And he said, since 1997, we've been looking for something like this, this kind of fellowship. And we didn't think it existed. And he runs these fusion centers all over the United States. There they're are these tech, technology centers where they're just tracking online and tracking um, technologically um, human trafficking, those that are trafficking individuals and young people. And now that, you know, with the Super Bowl coming here in, you know, in just a, in a short time in Tampa, uh, they're already on a lot that's going on. And so he's I was talking to him last night. He says, yeah, we are guy in Houston is trafficking young girls and sending them to Tampa and we're on it and we're and he said to me that you know what he said to me he said this he said he said and he said this to, to me twice and he said uh, he said you ever get feel guilty that you ever feel guilty that there's just so many people in this fellowship that really hunger and thirst after God that have quality relationships with God and have fellowship together and I get it we don't see that happen a lot. And when we look at Acts chapter 4, the, the, 
Volume. Volume. All right, let's <laughs> jack up the volume here. Acts chapter 4. I'm getting my street preaching voice on. Right. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And by the way, I love this place. Thanks. This is just awesome. This is a great place. Yeah. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And it says, you know, and they're, they're talking about here the, the great company of believers that were one heart and one soul, and great grace was upon them all. And there is not a needy person in verse 34 among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell and bring the proceeds of the sales, and they lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. If that happened today, we'd be called a cult, right? Yeah. You'd be called a cult. You'd have the FBI knocking on your door. You'd have people grabbing their kids and pulling them out of your, you know, your, your fellowship. You would be strange people. But this is what's happening when great grace is upon people. Because they're not living in this standard or of a law that is defined by the world. By the way, if I could digress for a second. Don't live in standards. And that includes don't live in battles that the world defines. Let me explain. The media is continually defining what the big battle is. This party against that party. And it's like... That's not our battle, guys. That's not what the Bible tells us our battle is. Our battle is with, was not with flesh and blood and with parties and people and politicians. That's not our battle. And right now in Texas, because, and I think Florida's like this in some ways, it's a very conservative state. And very people, a lot of people are upset about what's going on. And they're just getting into these battles and discussions on Facebook. And they're getting into all this stuff. And they're falling for what the world is defining our battle to be. That's not our battle. And when I say to somebody, look, like, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't, that does not matter. It, you're, you come here and we're going to, if you love the word, we have something to talk about. It doesn't matter. And that's why our churches are so, multi, they're so multi, like there's such a sphere of just um, like different kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And that's what the body of Christ looks like when it's the grace standard and not a standard of a cookie cutter religion. And so I really need to get into what I was going to talk about here this morning. And, um, and great grace was upon them all. I just want to mention a couple of things. Um, and I just want to hit a few points about what, what great grace looks like. Um, I think that grace, when we look at the theology of grace... And when we look at the doctrine of grace, and, and by the way, any doctrine or theology that we have that is not Christocentric, that's not, that does not have Christ as a center, is going to eventually be erroneous. For example, um, there's a movement called the gospel-centered movement in, 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 in the United States today. That's great, gospel-centered, I get it. That's great. But you know what, I can get so gospel-centered that I'm losing my the, 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 the Christ being the center of that and it becomes just about another program that people are so tired of. People are so tired of programs because programs don't change people. It doesn't matter if it's financial programs or religious programs or social programs or whatever these programs are. It does not change anything. Technology does not change anything. Nothing changes a person except for Jesus Christ. And so here, um, grace is, is more than a theology, but it's a person. I like what Louis Berry Schaefer said. He said, when used in the Bible to set forth the grace of God in the salvation of sinners, the word grace discloses not only the boundless goodness and kindness of God towards man, but listen to this, but reaches far beyond and indicates the supreme motive which actuated God in creation 
preservation and consummation of the universe. What does that mean? It namely means that God is gracious. What motivated God to be gracious? You ever wonder, like, why God? Why, why, you know, what do you expect from me? Do you expect me to be now a great person? Grace was not given to you so that you could become a great person. Okay? If you, that's not, grace was not given to you that to motivate us to be better people. That's just another program. That's just another law. It's another version of, of the law that cannot change us. Grace was given to us for one reason. Why? Because God loves you. <laughs> that's, that's it, okay? And that, does God give us something and walk away and say, okay, enjoy that. I, I don't expect you to change. Grace is a person. Okay, grace is not just this nirvanic kind of emanating philosophy that comes at somebody that, you know, that's some kind of beautiful vibe. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the impersonation. It, he is the incarnation of grace and truth in John chapter 1. Are you following me? So grace is a person. And, it's just, and until a person sees Jesus Christ, they can hear grace, they can hear the gospel, they can come to church. But in, unless there is just a personal revelation of the nature and the person of Jesus Christ, then there's no understanding of what grace means. And grace can become one of two things. Tolerance for sin, which is not it. Or it can be this other realm where you get, which is a very popular doctrine today in some circles, Christian circles, where we have to work out our own sanctification in our own energy and our own power. And that's not the gospel either. Because Philippians chapter 2 says that it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right? So you're hearing this message this morning. Maybe you're thinking, wow, this is great. I want to see this happen. I look at the book of Acts. I see these people giving up everything, doing that. And I can't do that. And that's the proper response. Whenever we read the Bible, whenever we see the word, or we look at a godly person or we see someone like that and we're like, I can't do that. I can't be that. I'm not that person. That's okay to say that because at that moment we look away from ourselves. We look from all the energy of the flesh. We look away from everything that we know and we look at Christ. And when we look at Christ at that moment, there's something happening in our life that we can't control, that we can't, that we can't mimic, that we can't try to do. But it's Christ living through us. It's Christ living, working in us to do the will and to do of his good pleasure. All right, are, you, are you following me? <clears throat> Another example. Remember in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, when the Israelites were in the de- desert and they were being bitten by brazen serpents. I'm not brazen serpents. By fiery serpents. Remember that? And they're eating, the, they're, they're being bitten by these serpents. And they're dying. Their kids are dying. Their parent, you know, their parents are dying. They're dying. And what, what's the? I mean, if you're a parent, what's the normal thing for you to do? To run and help your kid. You could be dying, but you go. You're going to run and help your kid, right? Or your parents, or your loved ones. Here, they're commanded to look away. Look away from that. Look away from. Look away from the screaming, the crying, the pain. Look away from the pain you're experiencing. Look away from the, the carnage, the tragedy, and look at the brazen serpent that Moses put up on the pole. And when you look away and you look at that brazen serpent, then at that moment, uh, you're healed. And that's the way it is in our Christian walk. The moment we look away from our lack of, our lack, uh, we look away from our failures, we look away from 
our experiences. We look away from our goodness, our badness, look away from our other people's goodness, and look away from other people's badness, which is just another version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We look away from that. We look at Christ at that moment. We're healed. And I can't explain it. I don't know the mechanics of it. I can't give you the psychological rundown of how that all works. All I know is that when you see Christ in the Gospels and you read Him and you experience Christ in the body of Christ like here, like in this body, something changes. Here's, here's another example. Paul the Apostle. Romans chapter 5. He's saying like, when we were enemies, Paul's referring to himself. When I was an enemy, when I was weak, and when, when I was without strength and a sinner, Christ came and died for me. And the love of Christ is shed abroad in our heart. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 through 8. It's shed abroad in my heart. At that moment, I have a revelation of the nature of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about those words this morning from John Newton. We know his story. He was an alcoholic, and he had just sold his little, his little baby's um, shoes for another bottle of booze. And, and he was thinking about that, and, and he wrote this. He said, that moment when grace appeared and my fears released. You know, there needs to be our churches, our churches, the mission of our church, the mission of our lives, the mission of our outreach and evangelism, the mission of, of our relationships is really that people would understand that, when, that you need to see Christ. And when you see Christ, you're going you're gonna, to, maybe you're on the road to Damascus. Maybe you're not out to kill somebody, but maybe somebody's out to make a very bad decision. It's been brewing in their mind for a while. Maybe you're on that road to to do something crazy or it's just in your mind for weeks or months and and it can, it's going on and on you're on that road to Damascus and what does Jesus do he appears to us on that road he appears to us on that road um, in Genesis chapter 6 and when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road it was a split second Lord what would you have me to do you know people don't need another program they don't need to be and that's not my wife and I are talking about someone that you know we love that's just in a very difficult place in their life and we understood that that person doesn't need more information about their problem because that's just going to push them away they need more they need to know more about who jesus christ is and in genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve sin what does god do god does not come in and pound on on history he doesn't come in intersecting in history and, and um, walking in like a bully, like large and in charge, like, all right, what just happened here? And just busting things around. God just comes along his side history with a plan that he's already had in eternity past. Nothing shocks God. And so grace is, a, God, grace is more than a theology, but a person. And you know what people need? They need to see a person. Um, Grace is more than just love. Uh, Schaefer says this. He says, grace is more than love. It is love set absolutely free and made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgment of God against the sinner. That's really beautiful. Paul considered his life was lesser in meaning. And after Paul had met this Christ, this person of grace, the incarnation of grace and truth on the road to Damascus, Paul considered his life as lesser in meaning than the riches of grace. When we see Christ, we automatically, we as a creation, we are as a creature, have been built in such a way that when we see our Creator, our Lord and Savior, whether we believe or not believe, we understand our place. We understand our value and we understand 
the riches of grace. And when he saw Christ, he understood that his life was lesser in meaning. When we look at the gospel of grace, when we look at Christ, it's not a big thing to follow him and to leave behind all of those things that we thought were so important, even those things that we were afraid of. And when we do that, it's not a big decision for us because we see Christ. We value Christ. We want Christ. We want that fellowship. Like, you know, I'm sure that many of you in this room, all of us in this room had great reasons not to be here today. But we came. Why? Because there's something in this amongst us which is valuable and it's priceless, and it's Jesus Christ. And Judas never understood that. Judas was in the presence of Christ, but never, ever understood the value in the person of Christ. And that's why it was so easy for him to sell Christ for 30 pieces of silver, which in the book of Leviticus was the, was, the, was the cost or the price, the least, that a servant could be sold for. Okay? That is just, that is just unbelievable. Paul was so amazed at the riches of grace, he didn't think it was a great thing to exchange his life for it. He goes, this is nothing. This is nothing for me to lose all of this. In Romans chapter 7, when Paul described his sad state, remember that Romans chapter 7 and and in Houston, we're going through on Saturday nights, the book of Romans. And when Paul said in Romans chapter 7, when he was describing his sad state, and I've heard some people teach, well, that was before he was saved. That was his pre-Christ experience. No, it wasn't because it's present tense. Paul said to Timothy, in the present tense of I am the chief of sinners. Okay? Who can say that? Only someone that understands the grace of God in their life can say, I'm the chief of sinners, at the, yet at the same time, I'm the most unbelievably loved and accepted um, part of the most amazing elite uh, group of individuals in world history called the body of Christ. What a paradox. You know, somebody who doesn't understand the grace of God is going to either fall on this side, I'm a terrible person, get away from me, I'm ugly, yuck, Okay, and that's Jesus in the boat after that's that's Peter in the boat after Jesus does his miracle with the fishes. Right. And then Peter says, and I love this. I think about this a lot. Peter says, depart from me. Just you're a good man, Jesus. I'm a bad man. Remember when he says that? Mm -hmm. Just depart from me. I'm a sinner. And you know something? Sometimes when you show grace to somebody, you're going to get that response. You're going to be like, you know what? I'm a bad person. I don't deserve this. And that, you know, and what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to that? You're great, Peter. No, he doesn't say that. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Because we live in guilt. We live in shame. We go to our cave, our shame cave, or whatever we do. We're there because we fear. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of grace. We're afraid that we don't deserve that. And that's why it's so, it's so funny that there are some people in their life that are afraid to succeed because they don't see their personal... Let's not say succeed. But some people are afraid in their life to experiencing blessings that God has for them because they feel that they don't qualify and they just stay in the zone. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of grace. Paul described this when he said, oh, what a sad state I am. He says, in present tense, who shall deliver me? And I love this. And I'm sure you've noticed this when you read this in Romans chapter 7. It's not what shall deliver me. Because Paul's not looking for a circumstantial change, right? He's not saying, oh, my circumstances need to change, right? How many of you have changed your circumstances? And I'm sure that people move to Florida from these different parts of the United States looking for a better life. And what do they find? 
circumstances don't change anything. It's just you bring your circum, you bring your, it's who shall deliver me, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Pastor McFarland, I know you've studied this. Who shall deliver me, right? Who shall deliver? Why? Because we're looking for a person. We're looking for somebody. We're looking for the person of grace in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. That person of grace who is Jesus Christ, who shall deliver me? Our heart cries for a person because we don't understand what grace is without a personal demonstration. And we, and, and, and we, 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 need to, we need to look at Christ in the Gospels. I'm going to finish with this. There's seven. Are we good? Can I keep going? Sure. If, if, if you can't, then we can stop here. And it's okay. Get some of those chips over there. Romans chapter, uh, sorry, seven nature aspects of the nature of grace. And just seven things that, um, that, that really speak to me. Our, but you know what? We're really unique people, aren't we? You know, in the Rome, Rome, a Roman historian who was, a, my understanding, he was a godless person. But he writes this about the Christians in the first century. He says, they're such a unique group of people. They're, they're like, they stand out. They're so different than any other religions because they, two things. They, they have such a sense of just purity, sexual purity, that they live in this, you know, this purity. And the second thing, they just live with this outrageous generosity. They just are so free with their things. They, they are so, um, you know, they, they don't live in, you know, like in this, in this sense of possession and that's mine. Seven things. Number one, grace is God acting freely according to his own nature as love with no promises or obligations to fulfill and, active, and acting, of course, righteously in view of the cross. You know, when God gives us grace, he's not asking us to promise something. He says, I promise you I'll never fail again. Pastor Ronaldo brought this out in a message a while back. He said, when Noah failed, when Noah failed, did God require him? to promise him that he would never, that he would go burn the, the, the vineyard and promise that he would never, never drink of the vine again. I don't think that Noah ever did because he understood that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When the woman in John chapter 8 was found in, in adultery, Jesus said, go and sin no more. I think her story, we don't see what happens. We don't see, oh, and she, she failed five more times and then she never failed again. No, it was just go and sin no more. I don't think, and we've got to remember, when Christ gives us a command like that, Neither do I command, con- condemn you. Go and sin no more. That command is like it's not it's not given to you like okay now you got to no you got to no sin you got to you got to no longer sin anymore. That command resonates with Christ in us, and Christ in us says, "I will not sin anymore. I don't want to because the new man, that new person inside of us, that the new, the, the spirit inside of us, that new person inside of us does not sin." And I'm not saying that sinless perfection. I'm just saying there's a part of you and I, and that's the new man inside of us that does not love sin, that does not that loves the will of God, that loves the word of God, that wants God's will in this, in, in, in their life. And that part of us cannot fail. That part of us cannot sin. And when we think in that new man, it's not like okay, I'm not sinning anymore. Success, hurrah! No, we're looking at Christ. And you know what grace does? And this is one of the points here: is that grace releases us from self-awareness, self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard that definition by Pastor Stevens. Humility is not thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. We're just not thinking about ourselves at all. I'm not in the picture, you know. How do you feel about this? Well, I don't know. I've never, I've never really took that into great consideration. I'm just happy to be in God's perfect will. How do you feel about living in Clearwater? I don't know how I got here. I don't know what, what God did, but I'm here, and I'm in the midst of the body of Christ, 
and somehow I'm in the, in the perfect will of God. You know what I'm saying? It's because we're not living in self-consciousness. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is knowing, oh, that's good, and knowing, oh, that's bad, that's where most of Christianity is camping out. That's, the, that's what they're eating. Oh, I did good today. Oh, I did bad today. Today was a good day. Today was a bad day. You know, that's how we hear, we, how, how we hear people talk, right? But that's not the tree that we're supposed to eat from. We're supposed to eat from the tree of life, the cross, the, which, is, which is the person of grace. Jesus Christ is that tree of life. Grace is, is not something that has been caused by, God, caused by us to, for God to give grace to us. It's not something that, is, that we have solicited from God by our good works. It's something that is dependently, it's it, totally dependent on God. God gives grace because God is grace, all right? Grace is sovereign, not having debts to pay or fulfilled conditions on our part to wait for. It can act towards whoever it wants, whenever it wants, and does often, and listen to this, and we see this in the Gospels and the Old Testament all the time. Grace is always, we see this pattern, grace is always mean to the people that don't deserve it. <laughs> the people, wait a minute, that person gets grace? You know, that person worked all day? I mean, I worked all day and that person worked one hour and they still get to pay the same amount? You know, like, how does that work? That's not fair. And that's the way grace works. Um, grace is actually making a, it makes a lot of people angry. It just makes a lot of people glad in, that, in Luke 15, verse 1. And it makes a lot of people angry. Grace, get grace does that. Grace cannot act, and this is going to, some of these sound familiar. If you've, if you've read some of, of Schaefer, it's not all from him, but just some, some points. Grace cannot act where there is either, where there is ability or achievement. Grace does not help. It is absolute. It does it all. Grace doesn't help us. How are you doing today? Well, grace is helping me. God's helping me. God helps those who help themselves. That's not even in the Bible. It's not even a Bible verse. Grace helps those of us that cannot help ourselves, that have fallen flat on our face, and it cannot help us. And you say, you know what? It is finished. It's a finished work. Uh, number five, um, there's, no, there's nothing in us why grace should be shown. Uh, we need to be taken off from trying to give God cause to be gracious to us. Lord, I know you're going to answer that prayer in my life when I get this, when I get my act together. You know, I was thinking the other day, I was like, you know, when I was a young person, you know, just wrestling with something. And I thought, you know, I prayed. I was a believer. I said, God, why don't you just like strike me dead? Why don't you just, why doesn't like I get hit by a car and die or something? You know, why doesn't God just take me home? Because I'm wrestling with this. And I remember just walking and thinking and praying. And God said, because... Because there's a time down the road in your future that you don't, know, you don't see right now, but there's going to be a time when you're going to be living in victory in this area of your life. And, that, and I'm, looking, I'm looking at that as a finished work in your life. You know, grace is shown to us in such an amazing way. Grace was one time described like water. Water is like when you pour water, when it rains in, in, in Houston, I don't know about here, but Houston, there are these torrential rains that last for about 15 minutes, and then the sun comes back out. And, all, and then the, the roads are dry in an hour. Like within 15 minutes, the roads are dry, right? And it's like, where did all the water, the, all the water goes to the lowest place. It fills, and this is nature abhors vacuums. You ever hear that? And same with grace, the nature of grace. If there's a vacuum, if there's a dark spot in our soul, when the, when, you know, as the grace is being revealed to us on a consistent basis, that's going to fill that hole first. It's not going to fill all the good stuff in your life first. Mm-hmm. It's going to fill those dark areas. And you know what? Every one of us in this room 
no matter where we're at and what our story is and how long we've been saved, there are dark places in our life. And you know something? Jesus knows that. And there's no condemnation. In Isaiah 45, verse 11, there's no condemnation. And you know something? When, when, when we understand that grace seeks out the lowest point in our life and wants to fill it with the personhood of Jesus Christ, it sets us free. It sets us free. Um, when we understand, when we've been brought low to know our own absolute unworthiness and our complete inability to obtain, to attain worthiness, we find ourselves in a beautiful place because we're living in a principle outside of ourselves. Let me explain that. God gave us grace, not because he knew we were going to be good and that we were going to get saved. He gave us grace because he is grace and he loves us so much. And this is one of the mysteries that we won't understand until we get to heaven. We just won't understand it. And the angels are just bewildered by this. But we are so loved and so cherished and so holy and so blessed and such saints and such powerful people that, you know, when you walk into a store, right, you know, every demon in that store knows your name, knows you're walking in the store and you're thinking about, okay, I got to pay this electric bill. I don't know how I'm going to, my car's broken or whatever. And we're walking in with our little clouds, our little world. And like every demon takes notice. Okay. That's Kim Hicks. Watch out. You know, (laughs) it's like, you know, Stephanie, watch out. You know, like, okay, tread carefully. You know, they they go to this Bible study group, like these cutting edge Christians, you know, And, 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 you know, like, and every demon has to get permission to even do anything in, in your life. And, and, that, and, that is, and that is such an amazing mystery. Billy Graham said it this way. He said, you know, one of the most amazing things and the first thing that we're going to recognize in heaven is we're going to see how gracious and good God is. And we're going to wonder why we're going to wonder why we didn't ask God for more. Why don't we God believe God for more? Why don't we take more steps of faith? You know, and it's not a regret, but it's just this pleasant like. You know, it's this pleasant revelation that no matter how unworthy we are, we are made perfect and made righteous. And remember this point, it's not us working out our own sanctification. We do. But if you look at the Greek context here, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I just, there's some great commentaries out there. It's saying that he is producing the action with my agreement, saying, yes, Lord, work that out. I'm yielding in Romans chapter 6. I'm just yielding. God's like working, right? In Houston, we have these access roads and these big highways, and there's these access roads, and you got to get up to speed. And when you get on these access roads, you better go in the right speed because you're going to just get you're going to get plowed into the you know into the emergency lane. And and so like that's the same thing. It's like we're kind of merging onto this highway of holiness, and everybody's you know God's cruising at an amazing speed, and and you know what's going to happen is that he's going to he's going to he's going to catch he's going to catch you and I up to that speed. It's God. We just need to yield to the flow. We need to yield to that. When we yield to that, Christ's will, God's will is being worked out through us. And it's no longer I. And lastly, that's why the flesh has no, play, play in the, has no place in the grace of God. And this is a great reason why grace is so hated by proud and just the natural mind of man. But for this reason, for this very reason, we rejoice because we know that in him, that is, in his flesh, there's no good thing. Yet, at the same time, he finds God so glad to bless us just as he is. Okay? I lied to you. I, was gonna, I said that was going to be lie. I just have... I, I, I want to I I tell you some questions that Jesus is never going to ask the believer, okay? He's never going to ask you these questions. Number one, 
What are your sins? He's never going to ask you that question. What are your sins? You know, have you ever been to a, a church or a group of people and they're just, you know, we want to know your sins. You know, what are your sins? What's your story? What's the, what's the storyline? What are your sins? Why? Because he crucified them. He crucified them. The second question he's never going to ask is, what is your past? What's your background? You know, in Houston, it's, it's really cool. I don't know why it is this way, but when I meet people for the first time, maybe because they've been hurt by so many churches and they want to just do the full disclaimer, like, this is all my trash right here. And if you love me, I'll come to your church. And it's like this, it is, this has happened so many times. You sit down with someone, like a first time visitor, and you sit down with them, you're drinking coffee, and then you just lay everything out. And a lot of times I just, I just say, stop. You know, I don't need to know all that. I don't need to know that because that's because Christ is buried. He is crucified. He's buried our past. Here's the third question that Jesus never is going to ask us. When are you going to change? When are you going to change? <laughs> we ask ourselves that question all the time, don't we? When am I going to change? You know, when am I going to change? Why is that? Because he is changing us from glory to glory. We're going from faith to faith. We're going from trust to trust, from from faith adventure to faith adventure, because he is changing us. Another question is that he's never going to ask us, why are you like this? Why are you like this? You ever ask somebody in your family, hey, why are you like that? Why are, why are, like, why are you like that? Uh, I have family up in the Northeast, up in, up in um, Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and they are just of a, of just a, of a certain political um, uh, frame of reference up there. And, and I just hear a lot about it. And, I, and you know, sometimes I want to ask them, like, why are you guys like this? Why are you like this? And that's the question that Jesus is not asking. He's not asking why, because his presence causes us to be God-aware. God's presence causes us to be Christ-aware, to be Christ-aware. And lastly, lastly, and I was overseas, and we were doing missionary work in a very legalistic part of Europe, in Ukraine, a lot of just orthodoxy and heavy-duty Christianity and, you know, um, like, you know, a lot of Bible belt, but it was more belt than Bible. And it was like, you know, it, it was like, and I saw a calendar in Ukraine and it said all, it was a picture of Christ taking, taking his cross, walking up Calvary. It was just a pretty gruesome scene. Somebody had painted it. And underneath it says, all this I did for you. What are you doing for me? Oh, yeah. You ever see that? Yeah. You know, and he's never going to ask you this question. What are your good works? Why? Because he works in us and through us. And I'm going to close with that. Grace is powerful. Grace is not a message that t- teaches us to go sin. Because if it is, if I'm living in that, then I don't know the grace of God. If I'm fellowshipping with a person of grace, then guess what happens? <clears throat> I want God. I want God's perfect will. I want God's people. I want to be about God's business. And the grace of God works in us, and it works in us powerfully. Paul said this. He said, it was not I... In 1 Corinthians 15, what did he say? But it was what? It was the grace of me. But it, and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I know there's some really smart Greek people in this room. But from my understanding, from what I've read there, it, to me, it's, I understand that it's grace working in me. Like it's grace is laboring in me. It's like it's the grace that it wasn't I laboring, but it was the grace that was laboring in me. I remember when we came back from that, you are so.